Welcome to Grit Nation. I'm Joe Cadwell, the writer, producer, and host of the show. And on this episode, I have the pleasure of speaking with professor of sociology at Middlebury College, worker rights activist, and the author of two books on labor, Jamie McDowell. Jamie's latest effort, titled Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream, addresses the loss of agency the average American worker has in managing their work-life balance, and why labor's next big battle may not just be about wages, but about time, too. We'll start our conversation by understanding the give-and-take relationship labor and management have shared over the ages, and how this paradigm shifted from the agrarian task-based formula to a time-is-money model with the advent of clocks. Next, we'll investigate the 1970s resurgence of corporate class power and how it led to the extremes in income inequality we see today and how this resurgence has led to a dynamic which enables a CEO to make over 350 times what the average worker does. Later, we'll discuss the triple threat that is unique to U.S. workers and how overscheduling, underscheduling, and volatile work hours contribute to work instability and why the American dream is alive and well in other nations, but is falling further away from the grasp of many Americans. And we'll finish our conversation by discussing why Jamie believes we should redesign our economy so that trading most of our waking hours for money isn't the only pathway to a dignified life. After this episode, be sure to check out the show notes to help you dive deeper into the topic. And now on to the show. Jamie McCallum, welcome to Grit Nation. Thanks for having me. Hey, thank you so much, Jamie, for taking your time to be on the show today. Before we get too much into your book, Jamie, I was hoping you could tell the listeners a little bit more about who you are. Sure. Um, I'm a labor sociologist at Middlebury College. So I study work, labor, uh, unions, social movements, American politics, stuff like that. And Worked Over is my second book that I finished last year. It came out during the pandemic. Um, and I'm working on another one right now about the pandemic. Your first book was also it kind of touched on labor unions in, in particular, didn't it? So my first book uh, came out 2014, which was about global union organizing. So transnational campaigns in the United States, South Africa and India and how workers in different countries in the same company organized to win global agreements, global contracts, basically. All right. And uh, obviously, Grit Nation, the average listener to my show, is a union member. We're in the building trades. And I know we have a particular interest in in always understanding more about organized labor and, and the history of organized labor and how it helps the working middle class of our country and Canada uh, be successful. And so Worked Over in particular is a book that addresses some of the the uh, problems that are endemic to the working middle class in our country when they, I'm going to say when they don't necessarily have uh, a labor to look out for their best interest. And what can you tell us about uh, worked over? So, especially from a trade union standpoint, I think your listeners would be, if not already uh, informed, you know, the average length of the working day declined for like a century in America. 14, 12, 10, 8. And that was basically through labor struggles, reformers, trade unions, uh, protest movements, anti-child labor law, stuff like that. Eventually, you know, after a century, we all started working a lot less. And then we reversed course. And so my book starts at that point, basically in the 70s, when the hours of labor began to reverse and climb back up again. And so... Basically, the the early question of the book is, you know, why that happened and why, how it was that um, those those decades of gains of shorter hours without a corresponding reduction in pay, how that was reversed. So So that's sort of the starting premise of the book. Sure. And we'll get uh, a little bit into what happened in 1970. But initially, as we know, the industrial age brought a lot of uh, focus on labor and people were just being worked almost like machinery. They were expected to perform six, seven days a week. 
uh, as you said, 8, 10, 12 plus hours a day. There was no life work balance at all. And it was all at the expense of the the workers, the the industrialists, the capitalists were the ones that were truly profiting from this. And the people that were working in these sweatshops, so to speak, were, you know, put in put in harm's way, both physically and 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 mentally. They were enslaved to some extent. And so how did the the labor movements in, in your understanding come to begin to push back against that? What were some of the uh, the significant catalytic moments that, that transpired? Well, so the history is interesting. So if you look back 100 years, it looks like um, capitalism has drastically reduced our work hours. Like it looks like that because we because because it has because we have reduced during that during that time. Um, Like we work less than we did 100 years ago. We just work more than we did 40 years ago. Um, But uh, if you look much farther back, if you look, you know, 250 years ago, the situation was much different. Like the introduction of clocks to the work to the workplace, for example, was a huge revolution. All of a sudden, people were expected to show up on time. You couldn't show up on time before there, before there was you know clocks in the factories. So there were bitter disputes and bloody battles over who controlled the clocks, because employers who controlled them routinely set them back in the middle of the day. And there was no not like anyone had a watch, you know, so no one knew, you know. And so there were there were huge battles to control labor time, to reduce it. And the introduction of the clock actually allowed um, the, you know, prior to that, the hours of labor were rather like they were long, but they were lazy. Like you showed up when the sun came up. You took a long break. You had St. Monday, which was, you know, another another added day of the weekend because you're too drunk to come to work. That was totally acceptable, you know. And so over time, the sort of bureaucracy and the rationality of timekeeping um, created, a, created a, a schedule that was much more rigorous, much more intense and much more um, under boss's control. And so that history is left out, left out of a lot of you know, sort of the history of capitalism and labor. And I, I can see that. I can see, you know, before the advent of clocks, before the Industrial Revolution, we were more of an agrarian society. You know, we, we set our clocks, so to speak, by the seasons or perhaps by the task. You know, yeah. we, we worked fields. So when the sun was shining, you made hay. You know, when it was raining, you had those down times. Right. Uh, exactly. When the cows needed to be milked, that was the expectation. That was that tasking was right. as opposed to, you know, an, uh, by the hour, by the minute sort of uh, oversight. Right. So so that's right. interesting that clocks Clocks really, uh, you know, played into that. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of studies of people of early agrarian, even pre-capitalist work sites when employers would try to coax people to work more, and they'd say, "Okay, well, we'll pay you more if you work more." And what workers typically did was just to stop working after a certain point because there was no need to <laughs> to make more money. You know, what are you going to do like with your money in, you know? whatever, 1600, you know, and uh, there was nothing to buy. Uh, so, so, you know, there was a real, like bosses were, were in some ways at a disadvantage. And we typically, you know, today we think of us having, especially Americans, some sort of natural, you know, inborn, innate Protestant value system that just is, is the reason why we work. The volatility of hours and and the volatility of the work ethic throughout history just shows that that's that's not true uh we never really endorsed a work ethic at a at a at at the same rate as we did you know four or five decades before or, or or after so um so that can't be the reason why i mean as you know we said alluded to earlier the main reason why hours crept up was the power of management. The main reason they eventually crept down was the power of labor. And then the reason why they crept up again in the 70s was, again, the power of management. Um, so really, you know, there's an easy argument to make that uh, whoever controls labor controls time, controls when you take a break, when you see your friends and family, how many days of vacation you have, how long your weekend is, et cetera, et cetera. And that is for, for that has long been the case. So my book just you know really focused on the last wave of that of that you know changing hours kind of stuff. 
So management there controlling time uh, until labor started pushing back. And that's when we started having those bloody battles you talked about to get rid of child labor, to, right. to earn the, the, the weekend. We fought hard for Labor Day. Uh, not only in the U.S., but around the world known as May Day. And eventually right. labor started pushing back and making some significant gains right around the, the era post-World War II in the 50s and 60s, sort of the romantic golden era of the United States. You know, you could have someone who had a, a nine-to-five job, uh, single parent going to work, raising 2.4 kids, the atomic family, having a car, right. having time for vacations, and having a spouse who stayed home. All that slowly began to erode and dissolve um, coming into the 70s. And, I'll, and as a footnote for the, for the folks listening, that, was, uh, that, that golden era was sort of the height of unionism in our country. That's when unions represented about one out of every three workers in the U.S., and right. now come along the 1970s. What happened there, Jamie? Well, so so the 70s was a, was a clear turning point. Um, if you think of, you know, as you said, there's a there's a spike in labor union membership after the Depression. Um, the New Deal helped. Uh, I mean, all of a sudden you got the right to organize the union in the Wagner Act and 19, whatever, 46, was that 46? I don't know, 38. Um, and, oh, it's half probably was 46. Yeah. And, um, and then, uh, you do see a kind of, you know, somewhat of a rise, somewhat of a plateau, uh, in the fifties. And, um, the seventies attack really was about, uh, what's been called the restoration of class power. So it's common today to think about capitalism as a system as being dynamic and future looking and oriented toward uh, growth and whatever. And what the seventies really was about actually was a restoration of the sort of gilded age politics that characterized sort of the time immediately before the great depression. Um, and so you had an attack on unions, you had an attack on working family incomes or, or mostly male bread earning incomes um, that sends women into the workforce at larger rates. Um, all of a sudden you have a system where, as you mentioned a few minutes ago, a single earner household supporting a family um, is all of a sudden predicated on, well, a double breadwinner uh, household um, who actually can still barely support a family. So, the, so, so that, you know, women entering the workforce to no fault of women, obviously, you know, did help to chip away at the kind of union heavy sort of uh, so people call it social wage that was basically there to sort of, you know, the idea that um, uh, a factory worker in 1971 could go to work 40 hours a week and basically earn enough to support two kids and a wife and send those kids to, to some, some kind of college. Sure. Uh, obviously, that situation was available mostly to white men. Wages, wage differentials were such that blacks were sort of afforded some of it, too. And, and black women have, had long worked. Um, so anyway, so as the power of uh, business grew, and as, the, as government increasingly sided with them, uh, unions lost a foothold. And... Um, they increasingly began to bargain over declining wages and declining benefits, declining health care, declining safety things. And what was left off of that agenda was time. You know, if you're all of a sudden uh, earning less, the well, the only way to earn more is to work longer. To and work so longer. It's, it's really not, you know, I mean, the rich, the American elite got wealthy by earning higher salaries not by working longer hours. The American working class, you know, maintained sort of a standard of living only by working longer hours. And so there's a very different experience of the last 45 years of history in that regard, whereas working people changed their hours the most, high-earning people did not, basically maintained their hours, yet gained fortunes. And so, you know, the old adage that time is money is only half true. Like, yes, time is money, but um, it's not that the rich got more money by working longer hours. 
So, you know, it's only time is only money for the American working class. If the other people, money is just well, it's money, right? Like they, you know, they literally made more money just by making more money. So, um, so it's impossible. You know, the average, you know, CEO earns what three hundred and fifty times what their like a worker in their factory makes. You can't possibly justify being worth three hundred and fifty times more. The decisions you make, the the work you do, is yeah. yeah. That is sort of what you know classical macroeconomics tells us happened. That well, people turn their their time into money, and somehow that, that you know that we know that doesn't that's not true. So there's you know this real interesting period, the shifts when they expose not only the weaknesses of labor to sort of secure shorter hours, but the weaknesses of sort of capitalist macroeconomics to explain what was really going on, and that to me was a really interesting time for that reason. Yeah, the in- income inequality has continued to grow by leaps and bounds. We're continuing to work longer, more hours, and uh, not really showing the financial gains that you said that the the 1% or even the one-tenth of 1%, I think, is how it's broken down now that uh, show the significant economic gains yeah, in our country. that's right. So uh, getting back to, to uh, your book, uh, Worked Over, you, uh, you started off in space. And you talked about the first strike that actually happened uh, off the planet, and you were talking about the uh, the astronauts. Was it 1973 that were working yeah, that, some incredible I mean, hours? That was actually yeah, that was the heart of it. The, the time we're talking about was the Skylab, the Skylab strike. Mm-hmm. Um, the only known to this point work stoppage in, in you know, outside the Earth's uh, atmosphere, and uh, basically they struck because. They were being forced to work 16-hour days. Like, you know, I, what, I don't know anything about outer space, obviously, you know. Um, but it seems to be the case that astronauts actually have pretty grueling schedules when they're up there because they can't be up there forever. So NASA likes them to put in a lot of hours when they are up there. And, um, you know, for all kinds of safety reasons, whatever. But these guys were really worked to the bone. And they, you know, had, for whatever reason, a kind of humanistic sensibility. And they're like, look, we just want to chill out and look at Earth and look at the sun or whatever. And, you know, they, as I said in the book, they enjoyed an incredible amount of power because no one could tell them otherwise. Like they were literally, you know, if your boss is looking over your shoulder telling you to you know, work faster or whatever, do this, do that. Well, you have to do it. If they're in Texas and you're in you're orbiting the Earth, it's really they have no power over you. Um, so uh, they, you know, they got what they wanted. Um they, they shut off the radio. Schedule. They took a day off, and then they uh, they fired it back up the next day. Yeah, and they, and they got what they wanted. And it was not only about the hours too; like they were being surveilled secretly um, against without being without you know they didn't know they were being surveilled. And um, so when Houston found out that they were being, I forget what it was, what their actual infraction was, whatever, um, they struck partly over the surveillance mechanism too. And today, you know, it's a perfect metaphor, which is why I started the book, because today workplace surveillance is like, you know, it's gone gangbusters. Uh, the pandemic has only increased it. And so and it's a really big, uh, you know, a major factor in all workplaces today. So, Yeah, that micromanagement, we call it bird dogging out in the field. As we know, you can, there there is sort of a, a peak performance that someone can give on a daily basis. And, uh, you know, just being expected to, to, to be... At, at 110% all day long is really an unrealistic expectation. You know, there's a lot of evidence that shows that, like, when workers have more power on the job, like, more stuff gets done in less time. There's a lot of arbitrary decisions that go into figuring out how long people, quote, unquote, have to work um, to secure whatever it is, you know? Uh, if you're told, well, you have to work this long and this fast because um, we have this many customers in the in the store, if you're a grocery sacker, well, just, you know, what happens if you work a little slower or a little less? Like what really actually transpires, right? Like, you know, people wait an extra two or three minutes to get their, to leave the grocery store. That's basically it, you know? And so the scheduling mechanism mechanisms by which people are scheduled today and put to work are, you know, pretty, well, they're brutal for one thing in terms of their intensity, but they're also incredibly automated. And automation, you know, has its merits. Um, 
but so far, few people can find out what they would be in a scheduling context. Yeah, when you're using uh, an algorithm to schedule people's lives that are denying them sort of accessibility right. to uh, uh, pre-established work hours, and I right, think it's exactly. one of the the main premises of your book. And if I'm if I can boil it down, uh, you know, into three different parts, my understanding of of worked over the first part is we are being asked to work way too many hours. Okay. Uh, and, and well, I, I think Jamie, it might be best that we just kind of address these one at a time once, once I rattle them off, but yeah, working way too many hours. Uh, the second one is that we have no control over our schedules. And then yeah. also sometimes we're actually being underworked, which seems like it'd be a little bit of a, a misnomer. Well, geez, if you're not working too much and you're, you're, you're working less, but that can also be very frustrating for people that are trying to achieve medical benefits and they're being kept right under the threshold of enough yeah. hours. So now they're not making very much. They're working less hours. Now they're having to find themselves two to three jobs in order to make ends meet. D- does that sound about right in a nutshell? Yeah, sort of the, the that's book? right. Yeah. That sort of triple threat is sort of the dilemma that workers, you know, the working class anyway, face today. And, you know, if we've talked about the longer hour stuff, the, um, the scheduling variability really is mostly, mostly related to service work. I would say, although it's expanding a little bit, um, you know, the, the idea of a nine to five job, um, is like slowly becoming antiquated sort of standard. It's, you know, I think probably I think I said somewhere that two thirds of American workers now work what would be what would have been considered a you know a variable schedule forty years ago. In other words, they work outside nine to five, they work before nine, after nine, or after five. They work weekends, they work night shifts. Um, you know, uh, hundreds of thousands of people work during the middle of the night. You know. Um, and, and, uh, and if you include the intrusion of technology into our lives with emails right. and text and mobile phones and yeah. 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 So, so that whole picture paints a thing in which people's schedules are um, disrupted. And it's often you know said that they are, that they vary or something. And it's like, well, they, they vary, but it's not like the weather. Like there's, you know, they're, they're set up to vary, you know, they're set up to be uh, unpredictable. And um, because, you know, like for the, the best example, this is Jamba Juice. Jamba Juice uses this incredible algorithm to schedule its, its workers. So, for example, during the rain, people don't want to stop and get a smoothie or whatever it is that Jamba Juice sells. And so they will, they will cut people from their shift, the middle of the shift. Beautiful sunny day. You're staying out, you're, you'll be here all day. You know, and if you don't, there's 20 other people who would take your your, your job, and so so that um, that scheduling problem is you know is is a real thing and has been the main way that workers have sort of fought back about time. The other one that you mentioned is the insufficient hours. Um, what economists call involuntary unemployment has been it's actually been decreasing, but it's nonetheless still very very high. Um, which is the you know the amount of people who are unemployed who would rather be working more more hours, um, and of course, you know what most people want is not more hours but more money. Like you know the the, the solution is really not just to employ people more but to raise wages, um, and so that you know that is the is the real. Thing. People always say, oh, well, these people over here, you know, you said they want to, they work too much, but these people over here want more hours. It's like, well, sure. You make nine dollars an hour. Of course, you want more, more. You want more of everything, right? But it's like that's not in the long term. That's not a real viable solution, in my opinion. Grit Nation is brought to you by Union Home Plus, who for over twenty years have been helping union families just like yours save money when they buy, sell, or finance their home. But don't take my word for it. Here's what Zach from the local thirty-two Seattle Plumbers and Fitters has to say. Once again, I must tell you that I think the entire staff at Union Home deserves recognition for their commitment to customer service and integrity. Or Marianne from the Operating Engineers. It's hard to write down how you made our lives so much better. We will be forever grateful for this home. You've gone above and beyond in helping. Well, there you have it. Testimonials from satisfied Union Home Plus customers. So do yourself a favor. Give the friendly folks over at Union Home Plus a call today. 
Union Home Plus, helping union families find their way home for over 20 years. And most people, when you say they want more, they want to be able to pay their rent. They want to be able to put food on their table. They want to be able to, to yeah. you know, clothe their children and, and have some sort of normality to their lives. And unfortunately, when you're making less and having to work more to make it, it, it really throws things out of whack. And you have a, a perfect example. Again, your book started in space, but then very quickly uh, found itself in a Dunkin' Donuts and right. uh, Maria Fernandez. Uh, was a story that really resonated uh, with me, and I uh, was hoping uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit more about Maria and what what uh, what became of her. So she was a I think she's a she's a Portuguese immigrant who worked in northern New Jersey at three different Dunkin' Donuts restaurants. Um, uh, she you know would sometimes work back to back to back shifts. Um, at, at that rate of pay, could still barely keep up with rent on her New Jersey apartment where she um, shared with her partner and two kids, um, his kids, actually. And uh, eventually, when she was, she used to sleep in her car between shifts and she left the car running to keep to stay warm. And she uh, died in 2014 of carbon monoxide inhalation while sleeping at a Wawa convenience store parking lot. And, you know, so for a while, Maria became sort of a symbol of a problem, like overwork, underpay in the richest company or country, uh, Freudian slip, in the richest country in, in, in the world. And so then, of course, all these stories came popping up. Well, there were other people like her. There were, you know, there were gig workers who were um, who were basically just, you know, working themselves to death. There were interns that you know, white collar establishments who thought that, you know, the only way to get ahead was just more hours, more hours, more hours. And um, the sad fact about Maria's life in many ways, I mean, she had no union. Union officials promised in her wake some legislation or some whatever, nothing materialized. Um, And, you know, she, she basically did die in vain. There was no great surge of interest after two or three weeks of her story, which is why I, I wanted to highlight it. Um, you know, the cup, incidentally, the cover of the book, you know, has a, is a picture of a car parked in this empty parking lot under a lamp, which I, I did not design the cover. I can only imagine it's a reference to that story. Emblematic uh, but, of, but, of her. Yeah. Yeah. Her so, uh, so it was a powerful moment, but, um, didn't, you know, nonetheless, for whatever reason, did not provide any real meaningful reform in, in her wake. Um, yeah, that's the pandemic was interesting because, you know, my book came out in September of 2020. And I thought that, well, a, a book that argues we should all work less at a time when like 45 million people were unemployed was going to be a real, it was not going to go over well. Seems a little tone death. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> it turns out, however, that every problem that existed before the pandemic was just it, exacerbated during the pandemic including the fact that people had zero control over their working lives. Um, and the fact that there, there has, there was, and has been a kind of general um, reassessment of the, of the sort of inherent value of work. And there's been a lot of people who've come out of the pandemic and said, look, you know, um, essential workers, you know, we're not exactly willing volunteers to sacrifice their lives during during 2020 and 2021. And if there's anything that comes out of this, what we need to remember is that like living a dignified life and being safe um, for you and your family should not be contingent on working 40 to 50 hours a week. Like there has been a way in which the, the you know, leg- proposed legislation in the four hour, in the four day week and other things has been an outcome of the pandemic um, in a way that frankly, I didn't even anticipate uh, before it. So I thought, you know, that was kind of interesting. And, you know, and all the reforms that tie healthcare and well-being and whatever else to work, you know, are, ba- are, are I think were proved to be pretty bankrupt by the pandemic, which is sort of what inspired me to write the next book. And and I know that the, obviously the pandemic is a global pandemic. And talking, you know, going back just a moment about the richest nation 
on the face of the earth. How does the U.S. stack up against other countries, European countries, the uh, France, the Germany's of the world, the Japan's of the world? How how are our schedule different, our, our system different than theirs? Well, I mean, every time you suggest in America that you should work less, they accuse you of being like a lazy European uh, dandy who just like wants to, you know, you know, whatever on the job and, you know, get a long weekend because the Germans and the French and the Canadians and the Italians work a lot less than we do. They, like, I think we work about two months more per year than do the Germans, um, about the same for France. What's, what's interesting is that the 40 hour work week has not changed. Like most, like those of us who do work a 40 hour work week tend to work that way. Um, what's changed is the amount of weeks we work per year. So, uh, which drastically reduces the kinds of vacations you can take and the kinds of like big chunks of time you can take off. Um, I'm pretty familiar with that too. Having lived in Sweden for four years, we would get six weeks off a year paid vacation. And typically, you know, in Sweden, people would take that off during the summer. So the entire country would shut down for that period of time. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Right. Exactly. You know, like if, if you're, you know, I lived in Switzerland for a while. If you can't shop on a Sunday. You know, there's no, there's nothing to do. You know, no one's because everyone else is off too. You know, which is sort of obviously, basically the way it should be. <laughs> you know, when I, when I lived in Switzerland, they were like, I don't know how you guys do it in America with all that those hours. And you know, if you only get a short vacation time, you must have to use it to see your family, and, th- and that's all you get, right? And I'm like. Yeah, basically. And like, what are you doing the weekends? I'm like, well, I just catch up on work, you know? And they're like, that, you know, that's horrible. And they talk about Americans the way Americans sort of talk about, you know, the Japanese or whatever. It turns out the Japanese hours aren't actually that much more than the Americans. I mean, they, they literally have a word for death by overwork, which is called Kiroshi. And many, in, in many contexts, the urban, urban contexts, our hours are very comparable to theirs. Um, so, you know, and at, at mid-century, we work less than the Germans and the French, actually, you know. So th- there's been this historic sort of re, um, reshaping of that. Uh, and, you know, as you can deride the Europeans for being lazy all they want, they're not poor, though. And yeah, their GDP are, is, is pretty significant. Right. And they right. have the a higher GDP quality of life. Right. You know, there's there's a complicated there's a there's a graph in the book that t- that basically shows the relationship between uh, how much you would how much higher you would expect the American standard of living to be based upon our work hours if you sort of normalize things with with European countries and you know we should you know if in other words if, if we had the sort of GDP to standard of living ratio as Germans do but we worked as many hours as we do in America, like we'd be filthy rich, you know, but we're not because we're not getting paid for the time that we should be. And so, you know, I, I'm supportive of the, of the legislation of our four day work week and for reduction in working hours. That's important, but those reforms won't come from the top down. Um, they never have in American history and they will only come from, you know, people fighting for time off. And I think part of that struggle will be a parallel struggle for better wages. Like you need to both increase wages and decrease time at the, at the, at the same moment or else, you know, that, that movement is not going to work. So it sounds like a bottom up organizing campaign by the American worker to pressure employers to understand and value labor so that we can, again, recapture the balance that we had not that long ago back in yeah, the day. Yeah. Right. I mean, if, 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 if uh, suppliers say, look, the, the, the price of our supplies has gone up, companies will say, oh, great, we'll pass on the consumers. And, and they'll say, um, oh, the price of our products has gone up. And uh, consumers will say, okay, well, well, we'll adjust our behavior accordingly. If workers say, oh, guess what? The price of our labor goes up. Like management loses their, their, their mind. You know, <laughs> it's like, it's just not there's, not, there's no way for American workers um, to win the argument over over the minimum wage. We have what is ostensibly sort of the most progressive regime in recent American history right now. And the minimum wage is still 725. Right. Um, it should have tripled. 
Uh, I should have tripled 10 years ago, but whatever. And so uh, we had this incredibly lukewarm, milk toast sensibility about, well, you know, blah, blah, blah. But, uh, but you know, until workers really figure out a way to sort of push for a shorter, shorter time, it's not going to happen. And it's very hard to do that. Like if you spend all your time negotiating over health care during a union contract negotiation, which is vitally important, well, wages and hours are going to stay the same, which is exactly why we need universal health care. You know, if, if workers did not, I mean, already health care is a driver of longer hours because, as you said a few minutes ago, to qualify for health care, you have to work a minimum number of hours. And in, increasingly, um, to get, you know, we're America is weird because most advanced capitalist countries do not base their healthcare plans on the ability to work 35 hours a week. We are very anomalous in that regard. And um, so, of course, people work longer hours to qualify for healthcare. And of course, everyone knows, employers know that if we got free healthcare, universal care, state funded, well, they would lose their powerful leverage come bargaining time to say, oh, we're going to dangle healthcare cuts over you. What are you going to do? Of course, people are going to capitulate. So that's why in in this book and actually the next book, uh, healthcare reform, sort of a la Bernie Sanders, is 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 a central demand um, to win because it's such a like a wedge. It's such a key factor, not only in securing basic human dignity, but also in pushing for reforms that would then even continue long after we won that. In your opinion, Jamie, do you think the current state of labor in America is reflective of this sort of disgust and dissatisfaction with the with the current um, way things are? It just and, and I, I say, you know, there there are just companies now having to hire or put out incentive bonuses to hire on, and there's just more more and more folks not willing to go to work. It seems like. Than ever before, and is that a pushback saying, "Well, I'm I'm more than willing to go to work, but not for these slave wages that seem to be, you know, stuck in stuck decades ago, the the minimum wage jobs, and and so it seems like there's a lot of um, push to, to to hire people. There's just not enough people wanting to work. What, what's your take on why that is? Well, so there's two things. So the the there, there there's no real labor shortage in most industries, you know. There's a surplus of shitty jobs, which is the, which is different, right? If I have five hundred dollars, then there's no yacht shortage, you know. Um, it just means I can't buy one. If I have five hundred thousand dollars, all of a sudden there's a yacht surplus. They're all available to me, you know. And so it, it works the same way with, with labor. There is a, there is a labor shortage in restaurants. Um, like we just we have an economy that can't sustain the amount of restaurants that we had before with the kind of labor practices that we had before, because those jobs just pay too little. I mean, the tipped, the tipped federal minimum wage is $2.35 an hour. You know, uh, once you factor in commuting times and sexual harassment and shitty uh, bosses and customers, like there's just, there's no going back. Those people are not going back uh, until you, until you triple or quadruple some of those uh, federal tipped wages. Um, however, the the panic over the fact that we're having to raise wages uh, finally just to get people to work in certain jobs. I mean, it's like that's what that's just like the formula for capitalist macroeconomic sense. Like if you're if you're a freshman at college and you go into a, a, an economics course and you say, well, how are you going to attract people to your business? The teacher just says you just raise wages. That's that's what you do. Like, luckily, in cap, the only good thing actually about capitalism is that we have a ready-made way to deal with the labor shortage. You raise wages until people are work, work for them, and right now we're still not doing that. The other factor in this, which people I think neglect, is if you simply go on the Census Bureau website, they have a very clear data point that asks people every week, every year, why are you not working this week? And uh, during the pandemic, far and away, the most uh, dramatic, most popular responses are that you're caring for a loved one, you're caring for a sick one, you're caring for a kid without childcare, or you have COVID. And once you combine all those things, um, 
it's pretty obvious that people are not working because they don't want to work anymore. They're not working because they have caregiver responsibilities, which are still keeping them out of the workforce. Um, you know, in Vermont, where I am, like we have a decent situation, but like tons of daycare centers closed during the pandemic and have never reopened. If you have a one to three year old, as I do, it's very hard to find daycare. Um, and what you do find is very, very expensive. So if you work at a grocery store, it does not pay to go to work. Like it's, it's better off to stay home with your kids. And so there's an important relationship here, I think, between sort of a care economy and low wages that are keeping people from entering the labor market. And I, and I think that has nothing to do with like a work ethic or wanting to work or whatever it is. Right. So it seems like a significant sea change is needed to, to shift the paradigm, to begin to, to, to start paying people what they are worth, making it uh, incentivizing yeah. them through wage and through, you know, um, dependable scheduled hours. And again, coupled with universal health care, there's so many things that we can do to, to sort of overhaul the system to, to, to regain the American dream to some extent. That's right. So if someone's read your book, Jamie, what do you hope they come away with? So what I hope they come away with is that we are all better off if we're all better off. <laughs> Basically, what I mean by that is that, you know, the old labor adage, like an injury to one is an injury to all. It really is true. If, you know, from an hours standpoint, if truckers and Amazon delivery people and are working insane hours, well, there's going to be more accidents. And at some point, you will be driving on the road when those people are also on the road. And that's a danger to all of us. Um, if we are underpaying people, um, as we do, for example, in nursing homes, well, then nursing home workers are going to go to work at multiple homes. And they're going to spread COVID to all of our family members, which is exactly what happened during the pandemic. Um, and, you know, like our conditions of life are contingent upon people at the, at the bottom of the sort of economic uh, hierarchy having good working conditions. And so there's always this thing where the right is like all, all about self-interest and the left is like, no, it's collective interest, whatever. It's like, I don't, I think that paradigm is total bullshit. Like it's in, we, we have all have a self-interest in working class people having as much power and uh, uh, as they can possibly get, because it makes all our, it makes everybody's life better, whether or not you hold those jobs or not. You know, we all have to eat, right? If packing house workers are treated like crap um, and forced to work through a deadly pandemic for no weight, for, for low wages, our food's going to be dirty and contaminated which it was, you know? Um, so it's like the food supply was threatened in, in America. That's insane, you know? Um, so I just think that, you know, once you get to the end of this book, um, long hours and underpay and workers without any power leads to, it's a, it's a, um, it's a diminished society. I mean, you can have what what good are what good are national parks if you have no time to enjoy them? Like, what's the point of democracy if you can't have Tuesday off to vote? You know, it's like we really have to think about the ways that we are as a society we are crippled when, um, like, long hours and insufficient and variable schedules and whatever else like dictates all that we do. And there is like a, a, a world to be, there is a changed world in the future where we enjoy a similar standard of living and we work half as much and we put all our productivity gains into financing new technology that can save the most arduous labor um, and paying people at the bottom of the income bracket. I mean, like, you know, people always say, oh, well, technology, technology, all this stuff. It's like, it's like, well, the gains of technology have been kept at the top, right? Sure. And so actually, the, the ownership of robotics and the, the ownership of labor-saving technology is an incredible obstacle to having that technology be used as widely as possible. There's tons of workers out there who are like, I would love to automate this part of my job, you know? 
could someone please? Because we don't actually automate jobs. We automate tasks, right? It's like no one automates an entire job. It's like you automate you automate tasks. So like, you know, when we, when we automated bank tellers and we got cash machines in the 80s, bank telling jobs went through the roof. They weren't, they weren't automated out of existence, you know, because they found other work. There was other things to do in that, in that job. They, auto, they automated the least desirable and shittiest part of that work. And the problem is, is that wages are so low right now is that there's no incentive to automate really bad paying jobs. You know, uh, we often think about, you know, at the, at the end of my book, most books like mine end with a chapter called The Future of Work. Every book that came out in 2018 ended with a chapter called that. And they all talk about shining robotics factories and Twitter and whatever else. Elon Musk having his own, you know, whatever. And what we should picture when we picture the future of work is a woman of color in scrubs working for $9 an hour. That is the future of work. You know, eight out of the 10 fastest growing jobs are basically a different way of saying the word nurse. And uh, well, the aging demographics, the, the baby boomers are, are getting yeah. to that point where they're going to need care. Of, of it's course. It's a huge demographic. And so we're all screwed if those people have crappy jobs. Um, and, you know, I think the pandemic illuminated a moment where that was true, where, you know, essential workers got a little, a little love for a while. And they got a couple of dollars an hour raise here and there. And actually people, the American working class has more savings than they did today before the pandemic. All that's great. Like we should keep going with that. Right. And um, we should reform unemployment. Our unemployment insurance is a complete, like it's a complete laughing stock, you know? Um, And do you see unions playing into the future of work, Jamie? Well, I mean, unions are essential all this. Like, you know, if, if, so I did my recent research project was on workplace safety, right? If you compare union hospitals, union nursing homes, and non-union nursing homes, unionized nursing homes um, have better conditions, better wages. And guess what? Fewer people died of COVID, both who were residents and who were workers. Like that is an astounding fact. Like unions saved lives in 2020. And um, unions were the main force that have mitigated uh, long hours and low wages in American in America, if you want real, de- like real democracy starts with economic democracy. And if you want economic democracy, you have to have workers have a voice in the job. And the only way to do that, unfortunately, is to give them a union. So when people say we should raise the wage, all, all those things are true. What we should do first and foremost is give people the right to easily form a union when they want one. Right now, 64% of Americans say they, they approve. Of yeah, unions. it's huge. Unions are on the upswing. Of, of Americans have them. That's a pretty big sign. Something is wrong, right? And so it's like we should at least give people what they want at the very least. And so unions are absolutely, you know, probably the primary avenue by which workers will make gains in safety, hours, health care, wages, et cetera. And that's where bills like the PRO Act of 2021 are, are so important in, in protecting the rights of people who want to organize. And then we have right. some of the, the corporate elites like the Jeff Bezos with Amazon doing everything they can to to, to put the hammer down and keep people uh, from organizing and, and asking for better working conditions. Right. Again, no one's exactly. advocating I mean, to be lazy. We just want to be uh, adequately compensated, ad- adequately totally. scheduled, given the hours to, to to build a life around while making the richest person in the world even richer. And we're, we're not asking for more than just our fair share. Yeah, right. Yeah. I mean, the PRO Act would be a great start. You know, it's people, it's easy to forget that like at the, the pinnacle of liberal policymaking, the New Deal, was the center of American politics. Like there was a right flank, there was the new deal, and then there was the left flank. And um, today we think of things like, you know, a green new deal as being this like utopian vision of whatever. It's like the real, the, the real daydream is that we can go on like this forever. That is the, that is the naive daydream because absolutely we cannot. And uh, like this, you know, policy reforms like a Green New Deal, like Medicare for all, like that would be would be driven by reforms based on the PRO Act are necessary. The fact that the PRO Act will not pass is bad, um, but, it, but it won't. That doesn't mean that there aren't other things we can do sort of in the meantime. Like the sky does not fall. 
But um, we have to really, you know, you know, both sort of keep our eyes on the prize and understand that, you know, midterm or mid-level reforms will have to be probably the way we go for the next couple of years. Right. And again, it's an embarrassment for the richest nation on the uh, on the face of the earth to have people living under blue tarps. I mean, I hear in Portland, it's just ridiculous how how um, far off base we've gotten from the American dream. When you see uh, veterans and you see the mentally ill and you see people that, you know, uh, just weren't able to keep on the treadmill that, yeah. that continued to, to move faster and faster and got spit out. And now they live under a, uh, you know, under a cardboard box or a blue tarp. And, and again, we don't have the social safety networks because we We've allowed rampant capitalism to just dictate the terms for the working right. class of our country. And it's, right. it's truly sad. Right. I mean, the, the word the American dream appears in my book title, but, which I did not write. And I did not write a lot about the phrase in the book, but except to say that, you know, um, it's alive and well in Denmark, right? Like upward mobility, like hard work pays off in some places. And the idea that your kids will have a better job than you will is alive and well in a lot of European social democracies. Not here. And uh, I mean, I'm, I'm Gen X. And like my generation was the first generation in a long time whose economic prospects will, did not exceed those of my parents. Millennials and Gen Z are even more screwed. And, uh, you know, I, I teach those kids. I'm around those kids all the time. And they have, you know, I mean, granted, I teach the elite ones, but a lot of them don't really have the kind of hope and optimism about securing a job that they like, that they think will will benefit them in the long run. Like they're, gra- they're grasping at straws. And uh, it's a sad commentary on the country that allegedly sort of invented the work ethic, you know? Um, so so I, I, I do think, you know, that the American dream is worth thinking about, um, you know, as, as a starting point um, and then figuring out where we can, you know, where we can, where we can go from there. Where we can take the future of work. And if you're a union member listening right now, it's no better time than ever to understand value and begin to protect your union because we have so much to lose if our union should go away. Again, I I mentioned it earlier that back in the the golden era of unions, one in three people across the U.S. were in a union. Now it's one in 16. So they have been chipping away at our our, uh, quality of life and our standard of living for quite a while. And we cannot let that uh, last bastion of defense fall. Jamie, this has been a fantastic conversation. If people are interested in learning more about your book and your work, where would they go? Uh, They can buy the book wherever you buy books. I never send people to Amazon, but everyone knows that's where you buy books. Um, um, I'm on Twitter at Jamie K. McCallum, uh, and and I'm easily findable on the web. You can shoot me an email if you like talking. So. All right. Well, thank you so much for taking your time to be on the show. I look forward to uh, talking to you in the future when you get your your third book written. And uh, thanks again. Cool. Thanks so much for having me. My guest today has been Jamie McCallum, author of Worked Over, How Round-the-Clock Work is Killing the American Dream. To learn more about Jamie, his books, and his message, be sure to check out the show notes on your smart device or on the web at buildnw.org forward slash podcast. There you'll find more information to help you dive deeper into the subject.